0: It's, it's, it's really dismaying to me, as someone who's been a reporter, been in media, um, to learn about the extent of how much is being covered up, and then how much disinformation is being pumped out at the same time. The Electronic Intifada.
1: The Electronic Intifada.
0: The Electronic Intifada.
1: This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Asa Wynn-Stanley is my co-host. Asa, how are you? I'm very good. We have a, a really great show coming up. This is episode two of our revamped Electronic Intifada podcast. Um, and uh, w- in a few minutes, we'll go to this interview that we did a couple weeks ago with um, our friend of the show, Max Blumenthal, Um but we wanted to, to first update the situation so that we we have a little bit more newsy information going into this interview, but also just kind of talk about why, um, why we brought Max on and um, what the bulk of his interview is kind of getting into the weeds of this um, organization called the Integrity Initiative, which we kind of touched on very briefly during the first uh, episode um, last week. But um, he's done a lot of research into what the Integrity Initiative is, its connection to, like, you know, as a as a as, as a very right wing think tank, um, the connection to Israel lobby, and also this manufactured crisis of, of so called anti semitism in the UK lobby, which which we talked about last time. Um, but also, kind of how how uh, it fits in, into how Palestine is a global issue, and on that note. Um, the day that we recorded the interview with max um was the day that uh, the the attempted coup in Venezuela began. Um so what are your thoughts on you know now it's been a couple of weeks um after this the beginning of this uh, coup attempt backed by the u s and canada and and um and other right wing uh, countries around the world. Uh, what have you been? looking at in in the past couple of weeks when it comes to Venezuela and and what's the connection that you see to to Palestine right now?
2: So we talk um, in this interview that uh, listeners are going to hear with Max about uh, Venezuela and um, me and him have a a bit of a discussion about how uh, Israel has aided right-wing governments across Latin America... Uh, uh, over many years uh, and especially going back to the 80s Um, and since then as uh, you predicted really um, Israel recognised Juan Guaido as the leader of Venezuela Um, so I mean it it really kind of speaks to how Israel is sort of a leading part of this sort of right-wing global alliance um which is really why we've um covered it in this podcast and we i mean yeah uh Maduro and Chavez before him were staunch supporters of the Palestinian cause but it goes deeper than that like it's 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 for us it's like it's a matter of principle to support to to oppose right. this uh coup attempt um you know with um Credible polling in Venezuela showing that eighty-six percent of Venezuelans op- oppose uh, military intervention. Um, those voices are kind of ignored, you know, in the mainstream media, in 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 a similar way to how uh, Palestinians are ignored. So, it Palestine is um, a global issue, um, and th- so I mean th- this is really why it's of importance to us um, to to cover this really? story and it's also why it was importance, of importance to us to cover the integrity initiative story.
1: I mean, it, you know, I, I was actually surprised that it took Netanyahu, I, I think, about a week um, <laughs> to, to finally come out and say, yes, we, we support this, um, this regime change attempt uh, in Venezuela and, and we support this, you know, unelected um, right-wing um, opposition person um as as the legitimate president of Venezuela. I was surprised that it took him that long. It was also interesting over the past few days to see, you know, this this very well covered rally. You know, the, the mainstream corporate media here in the US and I'm sure in Europe as well were showing um, you know, they, they were completely ignoring the the hundreds of thousands of people in the streets you know, marching against U.S. intervention and and against the, the the attempted coup, but they were turning their cameras to this opposition rally over the weekend um, that was sparsely <laughs> attended, you could say, um, but there were like these humongous American flags as well as Israeli flags flying, and I thought it was you know just a very clear example of of what. Happens when you have these right-wing, authoritarian, you know, pro-apartheid, elitist leaders of the world banding together to once again foment disruption and imperialist control over yet another Latin American country, um, as well as like you know, you see the installation of these uh, notorious war criminals like Elliot Abrams, who helped arm and train the death squads in Guatemala in the nineteen eighties. Um, who was also, you know, heavily involved in trying to disrupt Palestinian uh, movements um, for liberation. Um, So this is, you know, it's all kind of all these players are are once again, trying to foment discord and and disruption um, and and being explicit about their intentions um now you know centered around Venezuela's oil reserves. I mean you had Marco Rubio, right, like pushing for regime change in Venezuela and and, and clearly stating that he was excited that Exxon and Shell, <laughs> I think, were the two oil companies, Chevron maybe, um, were were going to reap profits in Venezuela. I mean it's all it's all you know very well laid out on the table now.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Um it was I, I saw As well, um, Max retweeting some of the pro-intervention protests, um, you know, these sparsely populated. And it was interesting to see that um, at at the stage at one of them, there was a huge Israeli flag flying, um, which is to be expected really from, you know, such a a, a right-wing opposition. Uh, But also they had like this weird display where they were, Right. flying all these different flags of, like, I don't know, countries they liked. So they had the US and the UK. But then they also had, like, flags of what they would think of as white countries. It was really, it was, I mean, it, it was just like, oh, Sweden, um, you know, Greece, just, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, Denmark. Uh, and it just a very strange thing, you know, Um and it kind of speaks to issues of uh, racism w- within the uh, Venezuelan elites, I suppose. Um,
1: well, Asa, before we go uh, to the interview with Max, um, give us a, a quick summary again of what the Integrity Initiative is uh, so people aren't totally lost in the weeds here um, and uh, and why it's important to focus on it right now.
2: Uh, so the Integrity Initiative is a British covert propaganda organization essentially that um under the auspices of a kind of think tank um which was recently discovered to have been operating um disinformation against um the left in the uk really working with journalists um online propaganda it it was um uh, targeting jeremy corbyn um for attack um its documents were leaked um and uh we we have a good discussion in this interview about it um uh, and the it's uh, under the auspices of um combating russian disinformation they're doing their own disinformation and it's funded by the british um defense ministry and it seems to have and the foreign ministry as well, and it, and it has millions of funding from, from the British government and has involvement of um, British military intelligence.
1: All right, let's go to the interview with Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal is the editor at the Grey Zone Project. You can find them at greyzoneproject.com. He's also the co-host of Moderate Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. He's also the author of uh, several Books, including Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel, and The 51 Day War, which was about um, Israel's attacks on Gaza in 2014. Um, Let's go to the interview with Max Blumenthal. Max, it's really good to have you on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Great to be on. Let's start off by talking a little bit about what's happening in the news right now. Today we're recording on uh, January 23rd. Um, it looks like uh, Venezuela is heading into a full-fledged coup. Uh, the Trump, Trump administration, Trump and Pence, as well as the Canadian government have, have just declared that they are recognizing the opposition leader as the president of Venezuela, Um, instead of the Nicolas Maduro, who actually won the election. Um, And, uh, you know, this is, of course, after Netanyahu and Trump have been courting Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, It remains to be seen whether uh, Netanyahu is now going to come out today with his support of the opposition leader uh, in Venezuela. It really looks like... um, (laughs) Like we we are heading into a civil war there backed by Trump and and um Canada and um Bolsonaro of course and, and Netanyahu kind of this like cabal of fascist leadership, authoritarian figures all supporting each other. Um how do you see what's going on there and and, and um what are your thoughts right now, today, looking at all of this?
0: Well it's really remarkable to watch the Trump administration back a figure who could uh, Juan Guaido, Juan sorry Juan Guaido, who is the chair of the National Assembly, which was dissolved because it was not functioning as a parliamentary body, but basically as a means for obstructing uh, the Bolivarian government's agenda, and it was replaced with a Constituent Assembly uh, that was more broadly reflective. Of the public, and the Trump administration has um, recognized its leader as the leader of Venezuela, so basically a figure who is not elected by Venezuelans. Uh, Venezuela has had something like um, 12 or ten elections. Uh, and in each case, uh, Hugo Chavez or his successor, Maduro, has won, and you know we've seen consistently the u s. step up the pressure. Um, with the Trump administration really ratcheting it up as they kind of pull out of the Middle East. I actually see this as uh, sort of peripherally related to the pullout that Trump wants to execute in Syria, where the U.S. is sort of moving out of the war on terror, moving out of the Middle East. The uh, Trump national security doctrine that was introduced under the outgoing Defense Secretary James Matt or the former Defense Secretary James Mattis, didn't even mention ISIS. It was all about great power conflict. And Trump is really moving more into the U.S.'s immediate sphere of influence and re- trying to reinforce the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and so we've seen the passage of the Nica Act against Nicaragua, which just repelled a right-wing coup. We've seen Trump attempt to denormalize uh, or, or, or step back from normalization with Cuba and start to reimpose sanctions on Cuba. And now we've seen... Thanks to the favorable geopolitical landscape in Venezuela, the Trump administration uh, trying to turn up the heat through, uh, first of all, Colombia and Ivan Duque, a right wing figure who won an election. Um, If you remember several months ago, there was the first um, assassination attempt on an elected leader by drone. Um, Drones were flown in to assassinate Nicolás Maduro at a military parade Uh, It was unsuccessful. That assassination attempt was orchestrated from Colombia by exiled Venezuelan opposition figures. The Colombian government was told who they were and where they were, and it did nothing. Then, as you mentioned, Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right figure from Brazil, who's actually the toast of the town here in Washington, was elected, and this really enabled the Trump administration to... Uh, move towards a full-scale military coup, which is what we see taking place now. Um, Venezuela has talked about fully breaking relations with the U.S. and that coincides with or prompted the Trump administration to recognize uh, Guaido as the leader. And if this takes place, it would actually potentially allow the U.S. to seize uh, the assets of CITCO, which is the Venezuelan state oil company, and it's based, I think, in Houston in the U.S. So that would be a major escalation. Uh, the U.S. is trying to prevent all oil exports from Venezuela. We're starting to see some street protests in Caracas and other cities, uh, the burning of statues of Hugo Chavez in more upscale or middle-class neighborhoods where the opposition had sort of a stronghold. And I think we're moving towards some kind of violence. Um We saw in 2015 the Garimbas, which were extremely violent, and they were put down. Um, I think we could be heading into a scenario like that, but at the same time, there have been threats of uh, military intervention, and I understand the White House just did a call with reporters um, and made a direct threat on the life of Nicolás Maduro. Uh, The rhetoric is really extreme, and as you mentioned, Nora, the Canadian government Has also um, uh, endorsed uh, Juan Guaido as the leader of the 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 official leader of Venezuela. So you know, nice sock wearing, uh, handsome boy, modeling school graduate Justin Trudeau is joining the Trump administration in what is effectively a putsch against a you know socialist oriented government. Uh, One last point just because you brought up um, Israel and Bolsonaro. Yeah, it's very true that Netanyahu has a special relationship with Bolsonaro. A lot of this has to do... and um, Actually, there's uh, Bolsonaro gave a speech at the Hebrew Club when he was campaigning, um, which was protested by uh, some, I would say, left Zionist Brazilian Jews outside who were um, affiliated with the youth group of Hashomer Hatzair, which was very close to the you know original labor founding wing of the state of Israel, and in that speech, uh, Bolsonaro stood in front of an Israeli flag and really positioned himself as the defender of Israel from within Brazil, a country where the population largely doesn't support Israel, but it increasingly is supporting Israel because of a concerted attempt to implant Pentecostalism, uh, evangelical Pentecostalism. In Brazil is a form of counterinsurgency. It actually started through funding from the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation in the 1970s to fund uh, the expansion of the World Church of the Creator, I think it's called. And this uh, church is led by someone whose name I'm forgetting right now, who's one of the kingmakers now in Brazilian politics. And it's that evangelical Pentecostal influence that provides a real basis for the kind of right-wing, pro-American, pro-NATO, and pro-Israel government that Bolsonaro represents, and that is not present in Venezuela. It's not present at all in a place like Nicaragua or in Mexico, where I recently um, witnessed the inauguration of Andres Manuel López Obrador, who is sort of a social democratic figure who is pledging... um, reconciliation with the indigenous population of Mexico, while Bolsonaro is actually kind of calling to wipe out um, pro-indigenous organizations. So that's a really interesting factor here is the the evangelical Christian right influence.
2: Mm, That's very interesting. Uh, Max, in the 1980s, um, there was quite a long, there were many instances of the Israeli government, um, Pouring arms into Latin America, um, even in times when the uh, Israeli government wasn't led by the Israeli right, it was led by um, the so-called uh, Labour Party or its um, related parties. Um, uh, that you know, the the arms going to uh, all sorts of death squads and sort of fascist or semi-fascist governments in Latin America. Um, and that's, I mean, that's something you've written about um, somewhat. Um, have you seen any evidence or um, indication of anything like that happening now in Latin America?
0: Well, you you wrote about it recently, Asa, but it was in Ukraine, um, where mm. um, Congress, for the first time, implemented or voted for a restriction in the um, defense authorization bill to the Azov Battalion, which is an ideologically fascist, um, I would say neo-Nazi National Guard unit. Um, It was a militia that's been officially incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard and started to receive U.S. weapons. And so Congress led by Representative Ro Khanna, who by the way, is the only um, elected official I can think of in the U.S. who's condemned the coup in Venezuela so far, no word from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or these new self-styled socialists yet. Mm. Um, But uh, they imposed this restriction on arming the Azov battalion. And the next thing you know, you see the um, light weapon of choice becoming the Tavor rifle, which, you know, if you've been to the West bank and gone through a checkpoint, you're going to see soldiers standing there with Tavor rifles. Now you look at the Azov propaganda videos that show them training and, they're all carrying Tavor rifles, Israel's always been kind of used as um, sort of a proxy to get around restrictions imposed by Congress on the Defense Department. And that's what took place in the 1980s, particularly in Guatemala, after the Boland Amendment was passed. Um, This is, you know, a really interesting period in American politics, the late 70s, um, early 80s. Because you had all these revelations of intelligence scandals and these blood-soaked assassination programs run through the CIA, like the Phoenix program, where there was actually a goal um, quotas were set of how many Vietnamese communist cadres the American death squads would kill. This all came out in the '70s, thanks to um, you know reporters like Cy Hirsch. It came out in the '80s, thanks to reporters like Robert Parry, the late Robert Parry, and you know, Congress actually started imposing restrictions on the so-called intelligence community, something that would be unthinkable today. One of those restrictions yeah. was the Boland Amendment, where they said that, you know, if you want to do covert action, if the U.S. wants to do covert action, uh, the executive, the president has to officially sign off on it so we can hold him accountable. Because Reagan was up there talking about Iran-Contra and Saying, "Well, I do not recall. I, I don't know anything about this. I, you know, <laughs> Colonel North may know more, but I have nothing. My hands are clean." <laughs> so, that was passed. So, what? It, what does the U.S. do? It turns to um, its contacts in Israel to arm Ephraim Rios Mont, who was this very Bolsonaro-like fascistic dictator who was a right-wing evangelical Pentecostal. His pastor was actually an American Pentecostal, and he was waging uh, basically a genocide against the Mayan population of Guatemala, but also trying to smash this leftist insurgency that had been going on since the 70s. Israel not only brings in Uzis and other light weapons, it brings in trainers. And the people Mm. who trained Rios Mont's army were israeli officers he said our model is the israeli soldier and they they really learned the israeli counterinsurgency campaigns that uh tactics that had been perfected in the west bank in the gaza strip since 1967 um that i think you know deserves more study but there are a lot of um, good studies there's a decent pamphlet out there by the um what is it? The international network of anti-Zionists, um, international Jewish anti-Zionists. Anti-Zionists. Yes. Network, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did a pamphlet on Israel's role in atrocities worldwide, um, starting with Guatemala. Um, right now in Latin America, uh, you know, Israel has a ver- the closest relationship it has is with Colombia, um, and that really just goes to like supplying them with you know communications gear, surveillance equipment and weapons, um, as well as just mutual political support. And, you know, Colombia has, uh, has, has cultivated those ties since its government and its right-wing militias were waging war against, um, you know, leftist guerrillas in, uh, in the, in the rural areas, um, in one of the bloodiest civil wars, um, Right now, I mean, that's it's not ongoing. The peace process is still taking place, but they now have a really close relationship with Israel. Um, really, I see Israel as you know, benefiting from these ties with figures like Bolsonaro through the U.S. And it's just, I, I mean, you, I kind of look at it as kind of a transatlantic or global alliance against uh, progressive governments.
2: Mm. It's interesting how you mention um AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the new sort of wave of, um, I guess we could say, progressive Democrats or, you know, Democratic Socialists, uh, members of the Democratic uh, Socialist Alliance uh, in Congress. I guess this literally today that we're talking about this happening in Venezuela, so I guess we should sort of wait and see. But uh, what they say, if anything... I mean, I guess the fact they haven't said anything yet is is not a good early indication, um, and it. I mean, it kind of speaks to the limitations of these kinds of uh, democratic socialist uh, parties or trying to reclaim these sort of uh, mainstream political parties in a way. Uh, and we see. I mean, Definitely. I think we see we see similar limitations here in in the Labour Party, um, where I mean, you know. Jeremy Corbyn's international policy positions are far better than Bernie Sanders's, is. Um, but unfortunately, there's far too many people in the Labour Party um, at all levels, um, I think we can say, who are far too willing to sort of let international, you know, what's called foreign policy, put it on the back burner and just sort of say, OK, we'll, look, we'll just give that up. And um, so we can get through our domestic agenda, you know, uh, in this country, renationalizing the railways and um, stopping the privatization of the NHS and things like that. And then maybe later we'll move on. Um, I, and I, I seem to, I mean, Palestine is obviously the kind of emblematic issue of that in a, in a lot of ways, uh, or it's kind of a litmus test, really. And um, so this whole thing to me, with the Integrity Initiative is quite telling in terms of people's attitudes um, within the Labour Party. Um, So I've been catching up with some of your reporting on this, Max, Um, and um, in some ways it's quite a complicated story, but in other ways it's fairly simple. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what is the Integrity Initiative and um, give us the Sort of broad outla- outlines of your recent reporting on it um, and then maybe afterwards we can talk a little bit about what if any implications there are um, for Palestine. Um, so just sort of take us through what you're reporting on it.
0: Well you provoked so many thoughts with what you with what you just said about um, the limitations of uh, for uh, sort of self-styled progressive lawmakers um, in the UK and the US when it comes to actually forcefully challenging Western foreign policy and just the whole concept of empire. Um, And I've noticed there's sort of an uptick in um, accusations that Bernie Sanders is a Russian plant. Uh, It's it's patently patently ridiculous. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, who is a member of Congress who's actually stuck her neck out, on some really critical foreign policy I- issues. Um, I wonder where she'll come down on Venezuela. And I really think she needs to make um, a f- a, an expansive foreign policy speech soon to lay out. If where Bernie she Sanders
2: is a Russian plant, they'd be working on that one for decades, right? How old is he? what, like, yeah. is he in
0: his late <laughs> yeah. 70s? Well, he took a trip to the, it's the Soviet long con. Union. Right. Yeah, he took a trip to the Soviet Union and, you know, he wrote a letter uh, supportive of the Sandinistas to Daniel Ortega, who's now persona non grata in Washington. And the Clinton sort of attack machine had compiled all this, but didn't deploy it because they were able to easily fix the primary process. So they didn't need to do it. Um, But, you know, they're still out there and I'm not sure who they're going to support, but they don't want Bernie Sanders to win. They don't like Tulsi Gabbard being out there talking about foreign policy. It's not just the Clintonites. It's like there it, there are much more powerful elements that are part of what I would consider to be a permanent state, um, and that's what we're talking about with the Integrity Initiative. But you know, I, I mean, there was a documentary called "Active Measures," which is about Russia Gate and how Trump is you know secretly controlled by Putin, and it's actually made by. The son of this hedge funder who is the boyfriend of Anna Wintour, who used to, I think, publish Vanity Fair and is very close to Hillary Clinton. And it features Hillary Clinton in the documentary, um, along with all of these people in her inner circle and a bunch of spooks, current and former, just talking about Trump-Putin. And this documentary's Twitter account recently tweeted that Bernie Sanders is controlled by the Kremlin. And that really is ominous <laughs> to me. Uh, it suggested that. And then there was this other woman who worked for a pro-Clinton super PAC who's trying to raise money to have, like, her name is Caroline Orr, to have, like, a Hawaiian vacation slash investigate Tulsi Gabbard for uh, Russian ties. And this is just, you know, Russia Gate has become, as I said from the beginning, as soon as it was rolled out, I said, it's going to blow back on the left and it's going to be used to suppress left-wing activity and to intimidate progressives and it's happened it's really successful um, obviously it's a very American phenomenon that goes back to the Cold War but there's been a clear effort to export it to the UK um, Yeah, and the UK has played a big role in Russiagate from the beginning um, through all of these figures who Um, most Americans know very little about but are connected to the MI5, MI6, Christopher Steele, of course, the author of the Dodgy Dossier, the Steele Dossier, which became sort of the basis for Russiagate. The production of it was funded by Perkins Coy, a law firm connected to Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC. Then it was, uh, you know, James Comey attempted to pay for it when he was the FBI director um, to continue uh, this... You know, private ex MI6 spooks investigation of Trump for Russian ties. It was used against Jill Stein as well. And then you had, you know, Christopher Steele's um, associate at Orbis, uh, which is the private intelligence firm that he runs, Pablo Miller, being very much uh, wrapped up in the Skripal scandal, where, you know, Sergei Skripal, who was a former. British spy who was jailed in Russia, who used to be a Russian spy, um, was poisoned in Salisbury in England, along with his daughter. And nobody knows who did it. Everyone's pointing the finger at Russia, although it doesn't quite make sense because it happened right before the World Cup in Moscow, while Putin's on a charm offensive and it's used um, in the UK to stir up Russiagate fever. Um, And Pablo Miller, who's a former MI6 operative, Happens to be Sergei Skripal's handler, was living basically next door to him in Salisbury while he's working with Christopher Steele, who helped spawn Russiagate in the US. And Pablo Miller's name is put under a D notice in the UK. What's a D notice? Uh, it means that you, as a member of the media in the UK, are legally forbidden from writing his name or publishing his name. Uh, that's extremely unusual. In Israel, they have that. You know, the military censor will tell you you can't. Not um, right. notcom, I don't know if you remember her, the whistle military whistleblower. Uh, the Israeli press couldn't publish her name. So this is highly unusual. And now Pablo Miller turns up in the UK cluster of the Integrity Initiative. He's named in that. So now we have to kind of step back and talk about what the Integrity Initiative is and why all of these names and all of this matters and why your eyes shouldn't kind of glaze over while I talk. Um, you know, if you want to understand not just Russiagate, but how our media is really acting as kind of an arm of the permanent national security state, uh, both in the UK and the US, you have to understand the integrity initiative scandal. And it started when the email servers of a think tank that none of us had heard of previously called the Institute for Statecraft, were hacked in November. Um, the documents that came out started floating around online uh, through a, you know, anonymous Europe, which for all I know could be Russian hackers. Um, and what these documents showed was the existence of something called the Integrity Initiative, which was covertly funded to the tune of over $2 million by the British Foreign Office which oversees GCHQ, which is the British version of the NSA, and MI6, the foreign intelligence arm of the British government, uh, to basically run a propaganda campaign to convince not just the British public, but the public across Europe and now in the U.S., that our societies, our countries, need to be on a permanent war footing against Russia and that Russian active measures, which include the broadcasting of UK and Sputnik, Um, pretty much anything Russian are acts of war that must be responded to with other acts of war, basically an information war. You know, it's really difficult for the US to do to Russia what it did to Iraq or Libya. Uh, Russia has a very strong conventional army, same with China. So what we're, we're, we're fighting is an information war overseen by figures who come out of the military and intelligence services. And that's who was in charge at the Institute for Statecraft. This think tank, which was posing as an independent charity, was actually run by people from the British military intelligence apparatus. And what they did was they created these clusters of influencers across the West, uh, many of whom were journalists. And they would have conferences of journalists where they would basically not necessarily give them their marching orders, but instill in them the narrative and then promote people, you know, with this British government money, like someone you know well, Asa, Carol Kudwaller, at The Guardian, who's been saying that Russia is behind Brexit. Um, Russia, Russian bots are the reason that Brexit passed. And, you know, in November, the Integrity Initiative held an event at the Frontline Club that I didn't know about because it wasn't listed on the Frontline Club's website. I only found out about it through these hacked documents. But it had all of these major journalists from the Times of London, which is like the favorite paper of the MI5. James Ball, the, the former WikiLeaks guy who's now at The Guardian and his basically his job, you know, he's just a professional Assange basher. And uh, yeah. Carol Cadwaller, who I mentioned. And so these journalists are mixing it up with these military intelligence apparatchiks. Uh, who are fanatics, they're absolute fanatics. Chris Donnelly, who's the head of the Integrity Initiative, had actually uh, published a white paper calling for um, NATO to mine the harbor of Sevastopol uh, during the beginning of the Ukrainian crisis, which would have caused a shooting war with Russia. Um, You know, he believes that we should be in some form of war with Russia, a nuclear power. It's very terrifying, especially if you live in Europe and you're in that sphere of influence. And there are these clusters across the West, I mean, in pretty much every NATO member state. And in the UK, what wound up happening was the Integrity Initiative's Twitter account was promoting all of these attacks on Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, And then when it emerges that this Twitter account and this organization is actually funded by the Tory government, you start to understand that this is kind of a coup taking place, a very British coup taking place against Jeremy Corbyn. Um, You know, I think the most principled progressive leader in the West who has a hope of, you know, taking leadership of a major Western country. And it's being run out of a group funded by the British government, run by the military intelligence apparatus with close ties to the media. Then we learn that in Spain, a figure who was appointed to the Spanish National Security Council, Pedro Baños, who was sort of a realist, he was very cautious about stepping up uh, conflict with Russia, was destroyed by a campaign planned by the Integrity Initiative through its Spanish cluster, which included journalists at El Pais, Um, the sort of favorite paper of NATO in Spain. And so this, to me, I mean, I could go on and on with their activities, but to me, it really highlights what's going on in our media. And I think those of us who followed closely how Israel-Palestine is covered in the media understand this very well, um, how a government and its cutouts um, can not just influence media, but even dictate media coverage to Um, enforce its agenda and cultivate a much less progressive attitude among um, the general public. That's what the Integrity Initiative represents. It represents the nexus between mainstream media and the permanent national security state. And that's why I think there's fear among a lot of these newer progressive legislators who don't know much about foreign policy and among Bernie Mm -hmm. Sanders about going where Jeremy Corbyn has gone um, where he really is the target of a very British coup.
1: There's also a, a tie with, you know, Trump administration officials with the Integrity Initiative. You mentioned um, in your article on the Gray Zone project that you wrote with Mark Ames, um, you talked about Sebastian Gorka and his wife and yeah. their ties um, to the Integrity Initiative. Can you talk a little bit about that and 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 what um, impact that connection has had or, or did have?
0: well you know the the integrity initiatives director who's a british uh army colonel and reservist uh in, who uh who is a military intelligence specialist chris donnelly has a long-standing relationship with sebastian gorka uh, he actually uh, approved sebastian gorka's thesis um, at a diploma mill in hungary called corvinus <laughs> university <God. laughs> it was as a literal diploma mill and it was wow. like a fake thesis um one of the other figures who approved the thesis who was on the panel of 3 i think was a right-wing hungarian legislator who had proposed putting pig's heads on stakes on hung- hungary's borders to uh, prevent Syrian refugees from entering the country. Oh my God! Yeah, like, so this is. A really I mean, that's thing. that's such a boneheaded Islamophobic thing, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's oh, like no, there's scared. pigs heads. We'll just go back and die. You know, we can't like walk around the pigs heads. Like, what what are you gonna do? Make a wall of pigs heads? You know? uh, yeah, it was as stupid as. Well, these are not you know the brightest people, but Sebastian Gorka, he's definitely clever it
2: speaks to the it's that's interesting because it speaks to the uh extremism of the of the integrity initiative to be associated with sebastian Gorkin, in right. such a close way
0: yeah i mean these are not sober-minded people although they have managed to really inculcate themselves in places that we consider to be you know the left of center, moderate realms of opinion making. You know the Guardian, for example, the Times of London. Um,
2: yeah, but... and so from that perspective, it's really interesting that the main defenders of this it seems to have been, uh, you know, liberal guardianista types. Really. Yeah. Um, I I listened a few weeks ago. I listened to the um, Navarra Media podcast. This uh, left wing. Uh, organization in in the UK um, who do a lot of good stuff Um, and they had uh, Paul Mason on Um, now Paul Mason has been a Corbyn supporter but I mean I have to say he's absolutely terrible on foreign questions yeah I don't know what happened to
0: this guy but I guess I never understood why he was this leftist hero in the first place
2: yeah, I remember a few years ago, you sort of... I think when I was on your
0: podcast, you kind of almost
2: tried to warn me about him. Um, and he, <laughs> he he was talking... And, you know, you were right, really. I mean, he, he was talking about uh, the Integrity Initiative. And his attitude was was very much to play it down. So, like, what is your response to people who sort of say... And this was Paul Mason's attitude, really, was uh well you know it's just a few tweets and you know so what and they're kind of they're allowed to tweet and uh you know so what what you know how uh, it's not significant you know What, what what do you say to that
0: yeah there's been more coverage of the integrity initiative in places like the guardian or huffington post uk to say nothing to see here than there has been about the actual content of the documents um and so that's why I d- devoted you know so much time and resources to it at the Gray Zone, um, at my website, Gray Zone Project, um, just because in the U.S. there's been absolutely zero coverage of it, mm. and I think that if you look at the Integrity Initiative, and this will go back to Nora's question, in isolation, then yeah, it just seems like some kind of, you know old crank uh, military veterans in an office uh, trying to, uh, you know, spin the public. But, you know, if you look at how much resources were put behind it by the British government, and if we actually knew the extent to which they were able to influence mainstream media and how much these reporters who are saying nothing to say here actually were invested in this initiative, um, I think we'd be shocked. But beyond that, I mean, if you... You look at what they're trying to do in the U.S. and how they talk about the Gorkas. Catherine Gorka is Sebastian Gorka's wife. She's in the Department of Homeland Security. She's a deeply Islamophobic figure. Gorka himself is not in the Trump administration anymore. He was kind of Trump's pit bull in the media. Now he has a deal with Sinclair Media, which controls, you know, in the red states and middle America— I mean, you can't avoid Sinclair Media. They control yeah. local news. They control the radio. Um, they have they give a,
1: scripts to all their news anchors across the country to read the yeah. exact same, uh, you know, line propagandizing for the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's that famous video that showed all of right. Sinclair's anchors. But, you know, you could actually do that um, with, you know—
1: yeah, it's not very far off from what anchors do in in um the networks yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly.
0: But but Sebastian Gorka has a deal with Sinclair where his d- commentary every day has to a- appear on every Sinclair radio station. So he's oh. basically, you know, mac it's 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 like Gorka being, you know, injected clockwork orange style through the eyeballs of, yeah. you know, Good American question. heartland residents straight into their cerebral cortex and still until That's they start nice. like you know, thinking like, and acting like Sebastian Gorka, and it's it's really scary. So he's I definitely- feel
2: I should add at this point, like, for listeners who don't know, Sebastian Gorka, the former uh, Trump advisor, right? He was a yeah. top advisor yep. in the White House. Um, this guy is a full-on fascist. Like, he is, I mean, according to the forward's reporting, who's done, done some good reporting on this, um, he is a sworn member of the Rend, I think that's how you say it. Yeah, a, a Hungarian um, fascist organization which you know, colla- which collaborated with Hitler during the Holocaust.
0: Yeah, um, yeah,
2: and you know, he tries to sort of say, "Oh, you know, well, uh, uh, it's just it's just that a med- was then, medal. This is now." Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> oh, we were critical of the Nazis, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean these these are the facts. I mean, this is a really hard right extremist, um, and I'm I didn't know actually about that. Um, uh, media
0: deal that he has right now. Yeah, That's, uh, yeah uh, the Vitezi-Rend are sort of admirers of Miklos Horthy, who was the uh, monarchist-style leader imp- imposed on the Hungarian population during the Nazi-German occupation of Hungary. And the line among the Horthy men, the people who you know think like Sebastian Gorka does, is that you know, they needed to make this compromise because they were holding off Stalin's Soviet Union as well and that's who would have taken over and who did take over um, if they hadn't mm. backed Horty then they claim that Horty limited the damage to the local Jewish population but um, while it's true that the worst pogroms were at towards the end of World War II there were mass deportations of Jews under his watch um, and you know, I have good fascist Dar. Um, on election night, Sebastian Gorka just decided to go in front of the cameras wearing a Vitezi Ren uniform, which is an all black collarless uniform with medals on it. And it just looks mm. like it looks like he's coming out of a Mel Brooks play. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> right. And then he wants us to not talk about the Vitezi Ren, even though he's wearing its f- uniform on election <laughs> night. Um and of course, what was his defense? It's the defense of like Steve King, the white nationalist legislator from Iowa and everyone once they get caught out there being fascistic. I support Israel. I love Israel. Yes. yes. Uh, I can't hate the Jews because yes. I love Israel. They all love Israel because the Jews are over there and they're not here. So yeah, exactly. If you don't have... I like... mean, I, this
2: is interesting to me. This is the really interesting aspect of the whole Integrity Initiative thing to me because it it really speaks to the extremism of it. Like, so it's, it, and in that respect, it reminds me of um, another project, disinformation project of uh, the British state from the seventies and eighties in Northern Ireland, where it caught, um, do you know, Max, about um, operation clockwork orange and Colin Wallace?
0: This is going to be new to me.
2: Um, so that, I mean, it, there's a great book that I can recommend everyone read about it from the '80s by a, a British, a, a really good British uh, journalist, uh, late the late great Paul Foot, um, and it's called uh, "Who Framed Colin Wallace." And Colin Wallace essentially was a whistleblower who was working for essentially working for British military intelligence in Northern Ireland, in the north of Ireland. Um, and uh, his job was to put out disinformation. It was like, it was actively faked information. It, uh, so it sort of sp- it span, uh the spectrum between just stuff that was true, but it was there, you know, the British narrative against the IRA and, you know, other cons- people who were considered to be enemies of the state, um, up until like, purely faked information, like fake documents to try and discredit the IRA, to discredit the broader Republican movement, um, and uh, all this kind of stuff. But what happened was, because the people behind, the, in the British intelligence services behind all this, was so extreme right, um, that it started to expand, their mission started to expand, and it was, it was in this Cold War atmosphere, whereby... Anyone who sort of disagreed with with the what would nowadays be called uh you know the what what, what was it? The Anglo-Saxon worldview. Yeah. <laughs> was considered to be, you know, an enemy. So what happened was they started to um put a disinformation campaign against against the Labour government on the mainland. Um and it and it was it was a large part, their their disinformation was a large part of the reason that um the Harold Wilson uh, government was kind of overthrown, really, in, a, in almost a soft coup. Um, and you know, Howard Wilson was nowhere, nowhere near as left wing as um, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, it, it, again, it's kind of a complicated story, but I mean, that's the broad outlines of it. But what really reminds me of it, um, it uh, what it, the Integrative in, in, Initiative reminds me of Operation Clockwork Orange. There's like, there's, there's parallels there. You know, they were both targeting Labour government Labour, the Labour Party um, it's not a Labour government yet uh, here nowadays um, and they were both sort of hard right uh, the forces behind it were hard right uh, extremists really I mean that that was what wasn't clear to me at first in the case of the Integrity Initiative but uh, I mean reading your article about it Um, And the mention of Gorka especially, it really strikes me. And one of the documents you linked to about um, uh, the interview with the uh, British army officer saying that uh, the military should be free of democratic oversight. Yes,
0: yes. I mean, the extremism is really clear. It's a a military push. It's an attempt to kind of re... Uh, to impose military control over all aspects of society. Um, I talked about the speech that was made by um, a staffer of Chris Donnelly in Seattle at the opening event of the Integrity Initiative in the U.S., which was kind of covert. It was held under the auspices of a a data firm. And, you know, I've managed to turn up the video of it, which they've since deleted. yeah, I noticed like a bunch of like
2: a whole load of the links in your article. The 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 pages have been deleted or
0: scrubbed or changed. In, in as well as ways. their
1: entire Twitter account, right? Just in the so, last week or so.
0: Yeah, the Integrity Initiatives uh, Twitter account is now locked, and they've deleted the Institute for Statecraft's website, which is the think tank. That's the parent organization of it. But you know, at so this... I hope I hope you have good backups. But I mean, it's a good it's a good <laughs> sign
2: of uh, how they're kind of scared of. Um... You're reporting, really.
0: Uh, Well, I'm not the only one doing it. And, you know, there's a reporter who's been doing an incredible job named Kit Klarenberg, um, who happens to be at Sputnik, which is the Russian-backed outlet. Um, But, you know, Kit is just a pure reporter. And uh, he recognizes the importance of it, and he's driven them crazy. Um, And they've tried to write it off and say, well, Russia's behind this, yada, yada. But it's all true. So yeah. it's like they say, there's conspiracy theories and there's conspiracy facts, and this falls into the latter category. Um, but but yeah, at the Seattle event, uh, this young uh, staffer is reading a letter by Chris Donnelly, the head of the Integrity Initiative, and you look at the content of it, and it's frightening. He's saying um, business executives, um, opinion makers, um, people who uh, work in... You know the intelligence field but also who are in civil society uh, all need to understand that we are at war with Russia and we need to abandon the peacetime mentality and start adopting a war adopting a wartime mentality that produces innovation and risk-taking and you know using this euphemistic language which could be interpreted uh, to be to, to, to lead to some really disturbing consequences and that is what, you know, is being said in the offices of places like the Atlantic Council as well, which is listed as a partner organization of the Integrity Initiative, which shares staff. I mean, there's a huge overlap between the Integrity Initiative and the Atlantic Council, and that's where I wanted to pick up on on Nora's question and on your, your question about Paul Mason downplaying this initiative. Is that this this is just the Integrity Initiative is just one aspect of a vast Information warfare network that, you know, at least focuses most explicitly on Russia, but leads towards uh, a new Cold War with China, as well as, you know, the recolonization of Latin America and, of course, uh, permanent U.S. occupation of countries or at least a permanent U.S. president presence in countries in the Middle East. That's the agenda. The Atlantic Council is extremely influential in Washington. I mean, their office is right there on K Street. Uh, it's, they, they're funded by NATO. They're funded by the Gulf states. They're funded by the arms industry. And, you know, a who's who of, you know, experts, self-styled experts is going to be there every day. Um, last Monday, uh, they were celebrating Bolsonaro at a panel discussion, um, and they're talking not just about Europe, but about the whole world. And they part. They're partnered with other think tanks like the Center for European Policy Analysis, which has many of the same kind of arms industry and NATO-related funders. And they're running. A, they're running basically an information warfare campaign that's targeting the minds of the Western public through their cutouts and friends and fronts in the media. And so right now, the agenda has focused on exploiting the panic of Democrats and liberals and people who had typically been sort of suspicious of international conflict and war, Um, their panic around Trump to open up opportunities to get on this war footing with Russia because the Clinton campaign was so eager to blame Russia and Russian bots and Russian hackers for Donald Trump's victory. And they've successfully done that. They've triumphed. They've gotten Rachel Maddow to carry their narrative to like 60 and 70-something semi-retired liberals who don't really know (laughs) jack shit about the outside world and were happy to accept this. And those are the people that were solidly against George W. Bush's war in Iraq. And now Rachel Maddow is one of the top-rated shows in the country. So they've they've pulled off this kind of cultural coup and brought us close to a new Cold War. What happens next is anybody's guess, but the Integrity Initiative is very clear that there's nothing more we can do in Washington. Like we've won there. Um, Our partner Mm. organizations have just basically taken over. And you had yesterday, uh, insane vote, uh, on a resolution in, in the house. Donald Trump, uh, should not, uh, cannot take the U S out of NATO. Donald Trump has no plans to take the U S out of NATO. It was, this whole thing is based on like a leak from John Bolton to embarrass Trump. And, um, basically every single member of the House, except for a few Republicans, voted for this symbolic resolution. Every Democrat voted for it. Um, and that really shows what the atmosphere in Washington is like. Um, there's no debate about NATO anymore. I think we should be debating whether you know the U.S. should be, if, whether NATO should exist, at least on the left. But that debate is over. So what the Integrity Initiative said it has to do is start to like span out across the country into the heartland and foment uh russophobia and a new cold war fever among you know the people in cedar rapids and that's what the mm. seattle event was about that's what sebastian gorka being at sinclair is kind of about um there and they're looking to work with people on both sides of the aisle there is this extremism yeah. as you said but it doesn't mean that they only want to work with right wingers um i think ideally, oh no, of course not i think the ideal situation is what um you know, for for these information warriors is to enjoy the kind of allies that they've had on Syria, where you have these self-styled lefties like Paul Mason, who are ramping up the, <clears> or <throat> projecting the narrative of military intervention. Um, and, you know, there was an influence operation very similar to the Integrity Initiative on a smaller scale, funded by a Syrian British billionaire named Ayman Asfari, um, as well as some other, Gulf elements um, called the Syria Campaign. And mm. they employed staffers uh, from Avaz, which is the global clicktivist organization, which is influential in drumming up um, support in the West, especially on the left side of the spectrum for intervening in Libya. Um, they drew from those staffers to create a public relations arm that went hand in glove with the creation of the White Helmets organization. And then they, you know, ginned up this humanitarian interventionist narrative about saving the children in Syria through a no-fly zone. Um, And the people who were who formed the echo chamber around the Syria campaign uh, were people that are more identified with the left. So, you know, you faint left and move right. That's much more effective Mm. and much, I mean, the more insidious you can get, the more effective you can be um, because what you want to do Is isolate your opposition by uh, winning over a portion of it, fragmenting it, causing it to fight among itself. That was very successful um, on the issue of Syria. On the issue of Russia, um, there really isn't a debate in the U.S. There is in, in the U.K., but in the U.S., everyone's afraid of being called like a Russian asset. So there's there's there isn't even a debate here on that. Um, that's that's frightening. And, you know, of course, there isn't any discussion about invading Russia or I mean, this no. is this is the genius of these of, of the kind of um, military mindset that um, shapes policy now is that it focuses more on kind of soft coups, and color revolutions and information warfare than direct conventional warfare. And so there's going to naturally be less public opposition because it's less in the public eye. Mm.
2: I think I think this is like exactly the point about the integrity initiative like the point is not that they made a few tweets the tweets are just indicative of their agenda right the, the, and what else the the point is what else are they doing that we don't know about um and, and you know hopefully more can be revealed about that I mean and this is why I mentioned it in my you know in my article in, I mentioned it in passing in my article about the troll uh, network um which is spewing anti-semitism and framing jeremy corbyn's labour party which uh, uh, we discussed in the previous podcast um but i think it as you say like millions of pounds are going into the integrity initiative have been going into the integrity initiative you know that money And what it buys is not going, you know, it's not going nowhere. You know, they're not fleshing it down the toilet. You know, okay, maybe they maybe they're making boastful claims about what they can do. Okay, well, they're still doing something. So what are they doing? You know, and it's kind of it's foolish to me for the people on the left to say, oh, oh, it's, you know, it's just a few tweets. Because that's really it. That's akin to like putting your fingers in your ears and sort of saying, oh, well, you know, advertising doesn't affect me basically Um, or when they they lock
1: their Twitter account, it's like, Oh, it's okay. Now it's, it's all over. We don't even have to worry about them anymore. They're gone.
0: Right. Well, yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's hard to understand how they're being, what they're thinking right now, but clearly they're, they're, they're in a state of kind of damage control, crisis management, um these are people who think that they're the masters of crisis management but you can you can you should really imagine how they would perform in an actual war based on their performance where they just have a few reporters they have some guy from Sputnik showing up at their door and like me writing stuff on the gray zone project and like you know a bunch of guys in the U, a bunch of academics in the UK who are tweeting things about them and then they just have to completely close up shop and like go hide in a bunker it's like uh you know, I, I, someone should do you know a remix of uh, the, the 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 Hitler movie Downfall, where they're in the bunker, and, but, they're, <laughs> but they're playing that they're they're doing the voices of the Integrity Initiative. <laughs> I mean, these guys are, are are definitely like some serious military bunglers who um, really show where the UK is at right now.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean, you know, there, there's certainly a level of incompetence there um and uh but i mean uh, again it doesn't mean they're not being listened to right they could be complete idiots but they've got all these they could still have all these journalists or uh, mainstream journalists sort of sitting at their feet with,
0: um yeah and so on that, that note i mean the journalists that speak to them are i'm just amazed at the idiocy and the the the, the just the poor quality of these figures who are considered the like star reporters on Russiagate, I mean, they're almost as bad as, like, the New York Times Jerusalem Bureau. They're just <laughs> so mediocre and such a bunch of liars, and they're so unethical when, it, when they get caught making stuff up. Look at Luke Harding, who has just serially fabricated material about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and was finally fully exposed for just a bogus story. On Julian Assange having several meetings with Paul Manafort, who is trump's former campaign manager and is now in the clink um and The Guardian hasn't taken the story down. Mm-hmm. all they did was kind of edit it so they won't so they can um you know pass muster if WikiLeaks takes them to court. then you have. McClatchy doing a piece on cell phone, according to U.S. officials, cell phone signals identified Michael Cohen, who is Trump's lawyer in Prague at a certain time, uh, which indicates that, you know, the Steele dossier was right and he was meeting with Russian spies or something. That appears to be totally false. The story's still up there. Everybody's moved on. And then most recently, you had this BuzzFeed story by Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier. BuzzFeed, you know, they're They've written, I'm familiar with them because they've written so many bogus stories about me. Um, But this one was just like fully false, basically claiming um, that it appears to be false that Trump instructed Michael Cohen to lie about his dealings with uh, Russian authorities regarding Trump Tower in Moscow. And it prompted Robert Mueller, who's normally considered the voice of God uh, among <laughs> Russiagate liberals uh, to actually issue a roll. He comes out and says it's not true. And then you see on Twitter all of these gators saying, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not clear what he means by not true. It depends on what the meaning of "not" is. Uh, it could be, you know, he misspelled.
1: Or maybe his his hands are tied because uh, there's some big Russian conspiracy that has blackmail on him if he comes out and <laughs> says that this evidence is actually there. So that sounds like yeah, QAnon, you know? Filippos, yeah, maybe
0: right? Mueller is compromised.
1: <laughs> right.
0: I mean, he actually did used to. Uh, do work with uh, Oleg Deripaska, who is just well, there you go. So there it is. So. <laughs> no, I think close, if Mueller close. doesn't satisfy uh, the, Maddow, the, the, the Maddow masses uh, with his final report, they're going to start saying he's compromised. But you know, right. my point is that you know, these are false stories, they're still up. BuzzFeed's Ben Smith um, has instructed his staff to stand by the story. He said, We're sticking by this. And that's all you have to do in this day and age is just stick by your story, and then everybody f- kind of forgets and moves on. Uh, the New York Times did a piece about these three stories with its media critic, who, you know, is just, I, I, I barely, he's not really a media critic. He's like a mainstream media lackey. And he said that the reporters are in journalistic limbo. And that's what happens. You get to be put in journalistic limbo if you don't just take down the story and admit that you got the whole thing wrong. Um, and they're all circling the wagons around this whole narrative that they've cooked up in tandem with, nation, with the national security state because they just can't step back from it. And that reminds me, uh, and, and, and that's what the Integrity Initiative is going to do. I think they're going to just kind of pause and then move on to something else. But that reminds me a lot of, you know, Hasbara, which is to basically, first of all, uh, you know, pump out the big lie when something horrible happens. Um, Remember Huda Galia? Her family was slaughtered on a beach in Gaza by Israeli naval shelling in 2006. There is video of her flinging herself on the dead bodies of her family. They were having a picnic. I actually got to work with the cameraman who filmed that in Gaza. Um, Just Kind of amazing to hear his account of what happened. I mean, he was a direct witness and it was Israeli naval shelling and Sippy Livni, who I think was the foreign minister at the time, came out and said, well, they had fallen on a bomb that Hamas had placed on the beach. Right. And, you know, Livni just sticks to that. Michael Oren, um, I remember when he was on CNN and all over the media when i um, during a um, cast lead in 09, 08, 09 he would say some of the same things. I think, no, he was, he said that the Bacher boys who were slaughtered um, almost on the same beach by, again, um, Israeli naval shelling or drone shelling, um, that they were actually um, killed, I think, by, you know, Hamas snipers. Right. He, 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 you know, they'll just say anything and then they stick to it. And because they have a reputation in the US of being this democracy with these serious figures who are taken seriously in Washington, they're not laughed out of town. Uh, They face no consequences. And then everybody just moves on and a portion of the people who saw that come away believing their bullshit. They believe the Hasbara. And so it's like, if you're totally cynical, you can actually um, do some serious damage control in the media environment in the U.S. Um, I'll point to another episode that's really fascinating um, that we're about to... We've, we've done a piece on it by Dan Cohen at The Gray Zone and we're coming out with a new piece today. Um, basically, there's this data firm called New Knowledge, which is run by these Democratic consultant hucksters who have been involved in a lot of the Russia Gate initiatives to design like a Russian bot tracker so we can say... Oh, well, whenever, like, there's a hashtag going around that's inconvenient to the, you know, status quo, um, for example, take a knee um, with the NFL protests, we can say, oh, well, Russian bots are really pumping up this hashtag. So Russia must be behind this to divide us in our previously, uh, you know, racially harmonious society along (laughs) racial lines. And these guys were hired. Um, by some Silicon Valley billionaires to go down to Alabama during the special election in 2017 between Judge Roy Moore, who's this theocratic, accused, you know, pedophile, um, grotesque gallery figure going up against this centrist, basically moderate Republican Democrat, Doug Jones. And what they did was they ran what they called a Russian-style disinformation campaign against Roy Moore, where uh, bots that spoke Cyrillic were purchased by the thousands and attached to Roy Moore's Twitter account. And then these consultants would go to their friends in the media, MSNBC, Mother Jones, and elsewhere, and say, Roy, Roy Moore is being boosted by Russia. And they made a lot of noise about that. It worked very successfully. Um, they created a fake Facebook page to support a write-in candidate who is a Republican to peel away support from Roy Moore and that candidate didn't even know that these hucksters were backing him, these data-savvy consultants. Then they gave a presentation afterwards about what they had done, and they claimed credit for swinging the race to Doug Jones, who had won by 20,000 votes, which is a very small margin in a hotly contested race like this. And the presentation was at a you know Silicon Valley data firm's annual event, and on stage, alongside them, Uh, alongside this presentation about what they called Project Birmingham, which they openly called a false flag operation, was Scott Shane, who is the national security reporter for the New York Times, who's been their lead reporter on Russiagate, and Scott Shane gave a uh, presentation on Russian and Soviet propaganda, and then he signed a non-disclosure agreement, basically legally forbidding him from reporting on certain elements of what took place there. Now, weeks, uh, months went by, the, mid, the midterms went by, nobody talked about this, nobody knew this was hap- had happened except for Scott Shane, who is supposed to be informing the public about this. And then the Senate Intelligence Committee comes out with a report on Russian influence on a private Russian troll farm called the Internet Research Agency and how it played this role in flipping the 2016 election to Trump which is just completely bogus. I mean, a bunch of fake Facebook ads had nothing to do with Donald Trump's election. And the fact is, according to Facebook data, 56% of those ads came out after the election. But here's the important point, if you can follow me here. That report for the Senate Intelligence Committee was written by the same Democratic Party data operatives who carried out Project Birmingham, who carried out what they called a false flag operation, which was a direct attack on American democracy in Alabama. And Scott Shane, the New York Times national security reporter, who knew about this, who knew about that report, I mean, who knew about that false flag black propaganda operation, came out with an article about how great the Senate Intelligence Committee report was and how important it was and how heroic the new knowledge uh, firm was without disclosing that he knew about this false flag operation they ran. Then weeks later, he finally dumped a report, which was a limited hangout, about the manipulation campaign in Alabama. But that, to me, really is the epitome of the dishonesty and you know, complete lack of ethics of the press corps that's been covering Russiagate. Because here you have an operation in an American state directed against the American population to manipulate an election using what they call Russian style tactics and a disinformation campaign. And it isn't a scandal it isn't a scandal. like the integrity initiative, it's only being talked about in social media. And you have a reporter, Scott Shane from the newspaper of record, who has all of the details about it. And he signed a non-disclosure agreement so that we don't even know what he actually knows. What else could they be up to? Uh, what could they be doing now? We don't know. So it's 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 really dismaying to me as someone who's been a reporter, been in media, Um, to learn about the extent of how much is being covered up and then how much disinformation is being pumped out at the same time
2: uh uh, this this is a story that's coming out on the gray zone
0: yeah i mean i just i'm I'm gonna publish it in like 10 minutes uh i just have to basically hit publish but then i had to do this podcast so
2: (laughs) (laughs) well we'll look out for that and uh i guess we should round up now um uh, well, thanks for coming on, Max. And uh, listeners should uh, visit the Grey Zone, greyzoneproject.com.
0: Yes, and uh, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for all the work you guys are doing. I'm sure thanks,
2: we'll Max. have you all on again. Absolutely. Yes.
1: Well, Asa, I thought that was a really incredibly informative interview um what do you think
2: yeah it was excellent and i think um we'll definitely be having max on again um and there's for definitely sure. there's a lot of topics to discuss um and uh you know max has been a uh, contributor to our website um and uh you know he's he's written for us in the past not enough you know, max you should write for us more uh <laughs> <laughs> um the Lobby USA documentary that um, Al Jazeera did it uh, filmed and did a uh, undercover investigation into the the Israel lobby in the U.S. Max is something of an expert on that documentary, um, and his website greyzoneproject.com, dot com um, was one of the first, along with us, to start leaking segments of it. Um, so. Max is somebody that um, we we work together with. So, yeah, great
1: guest. Yeah, in fact, um, up on EI right now, there is a two-part uh, video with Chris Hedges, the great Chris Hedges, um, who interviews Max and our own Ali Abunima about um, the Israel Lobby USA and its implications and, and what it reveals in terms of the... The reaches of the Israel lobby, um, especially as it uh, continues to suppress dissent, especially on U.S. college campuses. So check that out. We'll link to that on our podcast blog post, which you can find on electronicintifada.net. Um, and with that, Asa, thanks again for another great episode. See you next time. Thanks. And that's it for the electronic intifada podcast thanks to sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant for news information cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis visit us online at electronicintifada.net where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support The Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at The Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.